the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think that we were kind of in hiding for like two, two and a half weeks. And I, I do remember being at my grandparents' house and having a good time because we didn't see them a lot. But me and my sister were told, if you see your dad in the neighborhood while you're out playing, come home immediately, run. Don't stay, don't talk to them, run. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And today is what, Billy? Happy American Circus Day. (laughs) Oh my God, that one out of all of them? Yes. Do you know why? Why? American Dumbo? Circus. Because Dumbo's coming out. Dumbo is coming that out. That looks like a depressing movie. I and I will see it. He's too but, cu- they made him too cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I was thinking more about um, John Wayne Casey. Oh, oh, obviously. Obviously. It's also Happy Fish Fingers and Custard Day. That's the one that I was looking at that I'm like, how does that even become a thing in general and then have sounds its own British. day? Yes, yeah, it, it does sound British. British. But I will say probably... Uh, one that everybody can relate to on this Wednesday. It's National Don't Go to Work Unless It's Fun Day. That's fucking right. That's Jack's life. Yeah. I know. And that's why I'm here because it's a fun work day. Yeah. Jack's uh, motto is puke and rally. Puke and rally. Mm-hmm. I'm a puke and rally professional. By the way, it. I went, somebody posted a bunch of your, a link to all of your old pics and I had no idea. <laughs> My old MySpace pics? The, the old MySpace and the emo pics. Yeah. I had no You didn't? Idea. I had no idea. Had you ever Googled Do you have a before? crush on me no. now? No. And no, don't you guys don't. I will get a rash of messages about it. It becomes my problem. Everybody always all already thinks I'm in love with Billy because I make fun of him, but they don't realize that I make the, fun of everyone. The, yeah, the uh, no, the um, I was very impressed. I mean, that was some hardcore emo shit right there. I, I was a scene queen. After Why all. do you think her and Jared are the king and the queen we're, of the we're emo, emo royalty? Yeah, what can well, I say? I was, I was uh, yeah. You're also on like who she dating or whatever, like that. Are, I, are yeah. you going on a deep Google? No, I, it me? wasn't. It was right there. there you, was, like, you two like, are in love. <laughs> By Alexis, third wheel. They're going to kick me out of this podcast. <laughs> it's Billy and Jackson Love Podcast. Um, can we talk? Dude, about- you probably get more downloads than we get now. Probably <laughs> for sure. Can we talk about how Billy shows up every day when we podcast with just beers? Two his, beers in his in, in his, his um, in my little man bag. All right, there, in so, his satchel. And here here's the reason behind that. And I think it comes. <laughs> we're gonna get psychoanalytical for a second. So when my father used to take me to ball ball games, he would we would have a binoculars. And he would take the binoculars out in the binocular case and he would put three Budweisers in the binocular case. Ooh. Uh, to sneak into the into the the game, so he would drink dad. three on the way to the game because that's what you did back then. You the, drank beer in on in the car before it was illegal yeah, in the nineteen yeah. eighteen hundreds. Yeah. And then you and then he would sneak those in, and I would carry them so like the people wouldn't say anything because it's like what they're not going to search a kid. Yeah. So and then it he would drink three days. more. Then you, he would drink he three would more get there. Thrown yeah. immediately yeah, exactly. in jail now. Exactly. Right. The way that sport, he would be so pissed at sports right now, we would always either buy tickets from scalpers or give the usher $20 and then get to the front seats and everything. But yeah. 
You can learn more about him in my audiobook, which is out on. <laughs> wow, um, it was all a tie to plug no, his audio. That was you. You brought up the beer. But uh, yes, hmm. but this April was eleven all... called Chase Darkness with me. But I see. I will say yes, and it is yeah. There is there is very much a part of a, a big part of it is, is in the beginning is me and my dad, and then he passes away. Oh, yeah. Well, since you are. Um, plugging things shamelessly do you want to plug your other podcast yes jack my other podcast called jensen and holes the murder squad jensen uh, and holes sounds like a porno yeah well you know bj and holes was taken so we had to use <gasps> jensen and holes. what bj and holes would have been sweet <laughs> bj and holes yes so if you want to actually solve crimes with us that is the podcast to check out but yes. you're not allowed. And I'm very serious on that one. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not jokey on that one. There's no days that I talk about. But there is a. We do. We do talk about something called the weekly distraction, where we talk about what we're being distracted by, other than crime, at the end of each episode. That's cute. What we are going to do right now is categorize Billy's role here on this podcast. In that, if you want to hear the softer side of Billy Jensen, this is where you need to come. Yeah. You can hear him on his audiobook. You can hear him with hot for holes, <laughs> but if you want a giggle, a smile, a reminiscent anecdote yeah. from Billy, yeah. this is the place about there his is, childhood. He's yes. not going to do that on a serious shit. There I, is no giggling on in my, audio, <laughs> in, in my audiobook. There is me speaking Spanish in my audiobook because I had to do a. Oh. I was trying to. I was that a, I would pay good money. to I was see. chasing after a murder, uh, a murder fugitive in Spanish, and my Spanish is so horrendous. And I hope they they worked it all together and mixed oh, it all together correctly boy. because it's going to be. It was not fun. Well, I do have to say that when we came together as a trio to start this podcast, I didn't know Billy that well, and I didn't know that you would fit in so well with the gals. So you really, it's I appreciate your silliness, and I and I think America does as well. You're perfect. Oh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, Alexis. All right, so we're gonna get to it. And today's story brings us to Kaiser, Oregon, and we have probably. One of the most interesting first degree connections on this episode that we've had yet. Um, I'm just going to let Chelsea explain and let the story unfold, so I won't ruin it. But here's Chelsea Lavin. I grew up in Kaiser, Oregon. Well, we lived in a neighborhood with a lot of other kids, like my age and my sister's age. She was five and I was eight, so we were outside all the time. But I remember... Just having a good childhood, I remember hanging out with my family and my cousins and my grandparents and my little sister. So Chelsea's parents were Michelle and Charles Lavin, and they basically met and married in Reno, Nevada on March 5th in 1991. And two months after they got married, Michelle realized that she was pregnant with Chelsea. And all this kind of should have been a really happy, exciting time, new marriage, new pregnancy, but unfortunately, signs of trouble within the relationship between them already started to kind of pop up and things got really rocky. So one year after their marriage, Michelle left Charles and filed for a restraining order against him and a judge granted her a one-year order. I don't, honestly, I don't remember anything bad between my parents. So it's kind of interesting. I think they did a really good job of kind of concealing what was happening, keeping it behind closed doors. Well, I know he was pretty controlling now. I didn't really see it back then because I was only eight. Um, 
I remember one incident where she would go jog around the neighborhood and I would go with her and we could only stay. So there was like three streets and then cul-de-sacs on each side of the street and we could only go on our street between the two cul-de-sacs. We weren't allowed to go anywhere else in the neighborhood. And she was like, okay, Chelsea, we're going to go to the front of the neighborhood and the mailboxes. Don't tell your dad. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And I was probably like six or seven. And then we went home and I told him. And I just, she was just so upset. And now I know, you know, he probably got so mad because he was so controlling. But I just didn't know back then. We never did that again. But then Michelle and Charles reconcile. And the relationship continues. Five years after Chelsea is born, they have Megan, who is Chelsea's little sister. And their home in Salem had all of these uh, poppies and pansies blooming. It was incredibly charming. It was one of the most charming on the block. Michelle was friends with everybody on the block. They described her as charming, personable, beautiful. And as far as what their lives looked like, Michelle was working at a jewelry store called Samuel's Jewelers. She worked there for eight years and in 1999 had just been promoted to a manager. And around this time, she also started developing her own line of jewelry. Charles had been a bus driver for the Salem area transit district from 91 to 94. And then he started working at a cement truck as a cement truck driver for a local cement company. I feel like he was a good dad to us for the most part, from what I can remember. You know, it's funny, like, when you're that young, you don't remember a lot of things, but you remember specific incidences. And so, like I said, I remember him taking me and my sister out to dinner once a week, and we would do that, just the three of us. And one time he went and got me my favorite Hanson tape, (laughs) back when tapes were a thing, you know? I remember he liked my sister a lot more than he liked me. (laughs) He wasn't always the nicest to me, but he was always really nice to her. I was told it's because he looked like, or she looked like him, and I looked like my mom. Like, she had the dark hair like he did, darker eyes, and I had blonde hair like my mom. I was watching, like, home videos, you know, a couple years ago that I hadn't seen. He would always just tell me, like, no, Chelsea, don't do that. And then he's so loving to my sister. So I don't know. So Michelle toughed it out, though, through the relationship because the kids love their dad. And also she was afraid to leave. She was either used to or had simply decided to tolerate this relationship with Charles. But that all changed in November of 1999 when the police came knocking on the door looking for her husband. And why they were looking for him was bonkers, pretty crazy. And this is when shit starts to get really weird in the story. Right. So Charles ended up popping up on police radar after they were receiving multiple reports from professional women all over the town of Salem. And according to the women, Charles was taking photos of their faces from their professional ads like all over the town and then superimposing their heads onto bodies of nude women. He'd then send these photos to those women with letters demanding money with threats of extortion. Fucking crazy. And you have to think too, like this is 1999. 
So there, there, you know, the way that it was being reported was that it was like he was digitally manipulating or like yeah. sending, yeah. But yeah, he would take a picture of a realtor or an attorney or whatever, and then um, it, it was, you know, one of the things that he asked as it started to escalate, though, and I know we're going to tell this story, but as he started to escalate, he he said that this these will go out unless you you put your name or your address and your phone number in like a in like a classified ad. So it's so crazy because he's using digital stuff, but then he's like using the newspaper and going <laughs> like, you need to put pages. that in there. But what was he going to do with that? Yeah. You know? I don't, it's, it's really... Yeah. It's so crazy. And, well, and he would also threaten that the photos would fall into the wrong hands if, you right, know... Right, right, yeah. If they didn't like do, do, do what that. he said. Do, do the addresses and, he, and the phone They're numbers. probably thinking like their bosses or their dads or whatever. But also, I think it's like, it's interesting to think about what... So it's in 99, right? Yes. So... The time is different because I feel like nowadays you can Photoshop anybody's head onto anything. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is fucking bullshit, whatever. Yeah. But back in the day, I feel like it was probably way more threatening because it they were harder to make. It, they were harder to make and mm -hmm. they weren't so prevalent. Like, yeah, the deep the people were skeptical. They were, they, it was almost like they were harder to make, but they were also shittier, too. I know. You know I mean? I'm kind so, of wondering how good this Photoshop job was. Yeah. To be honest, no, it's probably like, it believable. Like, do you guys remember when we were in high school and you went to theme parks? They would put your head and like yeah. Photoshop yes. it. Yeah. So they were doing some stuff like that back then because this was like in the early 2000s. I mean, no, I, I remember getting one of me as Luke Skywalker yeah. with. <laughs> You do it with, on with the green Yoda. Screen? No, no, with Yoda like behind me, yeah. and my face was inside of Luke Skywalker. Oh my god, face. I can't yeah. believe they used to make like money doing that. Was I, <laughs> it's I totally forgot about like in, in Vegas, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes, no, was, I did it in Vegas. I did yeah. one in Vegas too. <laughs> it was Vegas. It's like Vegas. Charlie's Angels holding like yeah. weapons. Yeah. Oh my god, I loved those as a kid. So good. He, honestly, I, we haven't even gotten into the store yet. But here's an example that with your skills, you can take any path in life. Any you path know? in life. He could have worked at one of those places, but instead, it's going to go downhill. Well, and one of these women in particular in this case said that after Charles sent her the nude pictures, he called her multiple times, made harassing phone calls, and left messages saying that he would make the photos public unless she either had sex with him or paid him $20,000. And based on what he was saying, it was also clear that he was following her. Like he he was referencing her schedule and all sorts of shit. I really didn't find about uh, out about that kind of stuff for a long time. But when I was reading all of the um, police reports, you know, I read really in depth what he was doing and I was just absolutely disgusted. And it's really hard to even imagine that someone I loved, could ever do anything like that. I just feel really horrible for the women that he did it to. I feel really horrible for my mom when she found out, because I cannot imagine how that felt. You know, she didn't find out that he was doing this extortion scheme until he got arrested. It's crazy that someone can be so abusive and controlling like he was to her, and then it takes something totally different for her to actually be like, I can't deal with this anymore, I'm leaving. But this extortion scheme that he had going on, you know, it wasn't even about the abuse that she was enduring. She was just like, I cannot deal with you anymore. And I think he had a lot of other hidden things that she found out about too. It was a whole lot of like Photoshop, you know, back when computers weren't really that great and no one had, 
you didn't really hear about people doing this kind of stuff. So he's making all of these superimposed pictures of these professional women around town, putting them on naked bodies and trying to extort them, whatever he's trying to do, get their, their addresses, their phone numbers. The police are made aware of the scheme. They go to Lavin home, and this is when Michelle finds out what her abusive husband is doing in the free time when he's not abusing her. And the police show her the police reports. They show her the extortion notes. But they also tell her other things. They tell her that Charles Lavin, that's not his real name. That's actually an alias. His name is Charles Earl Friend. And he had a secret double life dating back to the 1980s. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Charles' friend had felony convictions on his record. He had a criminal history in Southern California for spousal abuse and willful child cruelty. Michelle also learns this day that Charles had taken his 18-month son from a prior marriage and hidden him from the child's mom for more than a year and during their search of the home they ended up finding guns so they charged him with illegal possession of a firearm because he was a felon and they ended up seizing the gun and he was arrested and indicted on these extortion charges my mom would you know do anything for the family but when it came to his morals being completely off and disturbing she was out but i don't know I, when i was reading the police reports i don't i it's way more than you read in the newspaper. Like, I don't think the news really got into that part of it, probably for good reason, because it is really disturbing. And he was, you know, calling this one specific lady, leaving her voicemails just from payphones. And they found out about it because they followed him to a payphone. It's really weird stuff. And it's hard to even, like, put... The put him in the category of dad when I hear that story, you know? I never saw that side of him where he was doing these weird, horrible things to other women, extorting them for money, like $10,000 at a time. So I can't imagine the shock of hearing all this from the cops when you've been married to someone for eight years and... You think you know somebody? I mean, and you think they're bad enough. And you, for what you know, doing. you already like, ah, oh, he's kind of a dick. Like, but you know, but exactly. And um, she finds all of this out, and Michelle's learning the truth finally, and it was a truth that really scared her. And these revelations were essentially the catalyst to the chain of events that eventually led Michelle to file for, for divorce. And unsurprisingly. He was violent and uncooperative through the entire process, but she managed to get court approval to keep him away from her home and from her work, which was she was a manager at a jewelry store at a local mall. So on May 24th, despite threats that he would kill her if she left him after eight years of marriage, Michelle took the steps to remove herself and the kids from the relationship and the home. She moved out, filed for divorce and got a restraining order. Like, when something traumatic is happening, it's crazy what your mind decides that you're going to remember forever. So, you know, my birthday is May 14th, and so I remember, like, somehow I remember right after my eighth birthday, my dad was arrested at our front door. And we were like, me and my sister didn't really understand what was going on. 
I don't remember my mom ever making us feel worried or anything. And I remember going to get him from the jail when we came home. And then, you know, I look at the police records and the newspaper and I see that it must have been just a couple days later that my mom was like, okay, we're packing our stuff, pack everything you need and we're leaving. And her friends were all to the house. My dad was not there. Me and my sister were just, you know, like getting our toys and clothes and off we went. We left pretty much everything except for our clothes, important things. I guess the next thing I remember, we were going to stay, um, I had a best friend that lived two doors down and her mom and my mom were pretty close in age and we were the same age. And we went and stayed with her and her grandma in a different town that was, I think, three hours away. And then the next thing I know, we're staying at one of my mom's co-workers' cabin. I don't even know where that was. Like, never did my mom make us feel like we were unsafe. We needed to worry about anything. And now I'm thinking, you know, I know what happened. And she's probably just scared out of her mind. We're hiding. So it's clear that she seems like she's doing all the right things. Right. You know, it's she's doing everything that they tell you to do. Two days later, Charles retaliates. On May 26th, he files a petition for a restraining order against her. And she says that she was pushing him, shoving him. She had verbal threats. And the judge from Marion County dismisses it. Then over the next two days, he threatens to kill himself and to, quote, take her out with him. Five days or three days later, actually, he takes the children and he leaves a note saying that she would never see them again if she called anyone. We went to go visit my dad back at our house. I don't really remember like how that went down, but I remember being in the truck with him when we were leaving. And then my mom had called him on the cell phone and he was talking to her in the front seat and me and my sister were sitting in the back of the truck. And then he was like, oh, do you want to talk to the girls? I don't remember this really well. And, and I was like, oh yeah, let me talk to mom. So I talked to her and I told her, oh, dad told us we're going to go to a hotel because we've never stayed at a hotel before. And we're going to go swimming in the swimming pool. And she was like, oh, I mean, I don't remember exactly what she said, but she's like, oh, that's fun. <laughs> Something, you know, like, and I was so excited. And my dad didn't seem like anything was wrong. He gave us one back. So we spent the night at the hotel. And then the next morning, we're getting into the truck. And me and my sister are both in the truck. And he's, like, shutting the window. And then all of a sudden... I look up and I see like five or six cops just surrounding the whole parking lot with their guns pointed right at us. You know, they're like, get on the ground and he gets on the ground and they all, they come and arrest him. I mean, my sister are just in the back of the truck, like crying because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know anything was wrong. So I take him, but the police officer had me in the front seat of the cop car, which was crazy. <laughs> and she was in the back seat and he took us through the McDonald's drive through and got us breakfast. And we were so excited, but confused. He had kidnapped us, is what they were saying. And basically, that's what he did. He had supervised visitation, and my mom was scared. So she uh, left us with him just for the day. He said he was going to take us to the park for a couple hours. She came back. I guess there was a note there that said, 
don't call the police or you'll never see the kids again. And then, you know, some other threatening things. And she was scared he was taking us to the airport because he had apparently kidnapped one of his kids previously, my sister, for a whole year. And so my mom was scared that he was going to do that. That is so confusing. I mean, imagine being an eight-year-old and being pulled in two complete crazy directions and you don't know what to think or how to react to things. You don't even know what being arrested is. Like... Right. And the fact that like she's like Chelsea said in the beginning, it's like she loved her dad. They went to weekly dinners and like he, he was, was a, a great dad. dad. Yeah. yeah. And bravo to that cop for taking them to McDonald's. I know. Oh, <laughs> because, you know, nothing <coughs> makes a kid happier than going than to McDonald's a happy and meal. Getting, yeah. or, or Billy Johnson. This is an unpaid advertisement. <laughs> Honestly, McDonald's would be a great sponsor. <laughs> nudge, nudge, <laughs> wink, wink, wink. wink. Okay. So on May 30th, Charles was arrested and he spent June 1st in jail. On June 3rd, he was served with another restraining order. And four days later, he tried to call Michelle at work. He was arrested again for violating his restraining order. And one of his coworkers paid Charles his $500 bail, but he was now facing a six month jail term for contempt and he was scheduled to return to court on June 10th. But unsurprisingly, he didn't show up and a warrant was issued for his arrest. You know, she was just scared to death of him. But yeah, so she went back to work on the 7th, but my sister was with my mom, and they were in the parking garage because she had a parking spot. She worked at the mall. She was the manager of a jewelry store, and he had shown up and followed them in his car. And so I guess they just ran through this parking garage and he had been calling her work threatening her and the next day he called her work saying that he was sitting next to her car and that you know if he didn't get to see his kids that he was gonna kill her or kill them me and my sister and he was threatening the people she worked with it was all just i think pretty chaotic and then it's kind of a blur i guess what happened right after that I remember we went, I think that we were kind of in hiding for like two and a half weeks. And we didn't go to school or anything and she didn't go to work. And I think we were staying in my grandparents' house and she had to go back to work. And I I do remember being at my grandparents' house and having a good time because we didn't see them a lot. But me and my sister were told, if you see your dad in the neighborhood while you're out playing, come home immediately. Run. So, to recap... We're at the morning of June 10th, 1999. And this was actually supposed to be a great day for Michelle, one that would finally help her breathe a sigh of relief because her husband Charles was slated to go to jail for violating his restraining order for stalking Michelle and also for these things related to this odd extortion. So Michelle had not been living at the family home as Chelsea stated. They'd been hopping around and sort of hiding with friends and family. So Charles didn't know where she and the kids were living. And she was trying to keep them in hiding for this very reason. He was looking for them. So she was also afraid that if she gave him additional visitation and things like that, that he would take them and leave town because he has a track record of doing this. And he's done it once before. She went to work on June 10th. And she dropped me off at school. And she dropped my sister off at daycare went to work 
and then he found her in the parking garage and shot her in her car. So, I, I mean, I remember after that, I was at school and the principal came and was like, Chelsea, do you want to come to my office? I want to talk to you. We're going to do something. And I loved school, so I was like, I don't want to miss class. <laughs> I'll come at recess time, at lunchtime. She was like, oh, okay. And so I did it, and it was probably like an hour wait, you know, and I just imagine like their angst and how <laughs> the principal felt sitting in her office waiting for me to come. But I went down there, and there was the principal and a police officer. And I was like, what's happening? And the police officer was like, we have to go. And I was like, okay. So we went with the police officer in this weird van, didn't know where we were going. He's like, we're going to go get your sister. It's going to be fine. So we go pick up my sister. And I remember this, too. Like, we got my sister. We put her in the van, but there was no seats. So we put her like on the floor and covered her with a blanket. Now I know it was like a police van, you know, for protective custody. And so they took us straight to the police station and then my grandparents were there. And I was like, what is happening? And I remember just looking at my grandparents and I've never seen my grandpa cry except for this point. And they're both just crying. And we're like, what's happening? And then they're like, I don't remember how they told us, but pretty much like, your mom is dead. 32-year-old Michelle Lavin, she was found Thursday morning in the driver's seat of her red 1999 Mitsubishi Eclipse. And a parking enforcement officer called the police around 10.20 a.m. after finding broken glass on the top level of the parking structure. Now, she was in this, in this parking area next to the mall where this jewelry store where she worked was located. And the tape from the parking structure's surveillance camera showed Michelle arriving at her car. And this is, it's, it's so crazy because you, you can feel this. You can feel this as a horror movie, but it's real. So she, they show her arriving at her car. Then she realizes that Charles had followed her in. And was approaching her. And it looks like that she's trying to start this car, like frantically start the car. And while she's trying to start the car and go away, he walks up and he shoots her point blank through the car window with a shotgun. And then he leaves. And she had a shotgun wound to the back of the head and two to the upper body. One of the detectives at the scene said, it happened in the morning in a busy downtown area, and he didn't understand how nobody heard it. And her death was actually Salem's first homicide in the year of 1999. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 
10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So obviously this is a massive deal and a huge search for Charles went underway. Police scoured the three floor garage for evidence looking under every car. They're jotting down license plate numbers and sifting through garbage cans. They flooded the crowded mall with police officers and surrounding streets, but they could not find him anywhere. So they obviously rushed to the daycare center where their children where his children were and both of them were taken into protective custody which chelsea was talking about before and after hearing the news of what had happened michelle's parents rushed to her workplace to try to get information about what had happened i can't even imagine how confused everybody is at this point no it's so crazy like so fucking horrible right nobody knows what's going on no so you know, while everybody's trying to get information and figure out what the hell is happening, um, a phone at Samuel's Jewelers starts ringing, and that's where Michelle worked. And it was Charles that was on the line. He called the store from a cell phone and started making threats towards Michelle's parents, and he was threatening to come back to the mall and kill them as well. So the mall was on lockdown, and they ushered Michelle's parents to safety. And this is after he just killed Michelle. And then he's calling the mall boldly to, threaten, to the threaten the parents. I mean, God. it is it is crazy. So during the search for Charles, I mean, an obvious place to look would be the Lavin home. And when the police went there, um, this is when Michelle's neighbors learned of her death. And many of them got really upset, started crying. But what was interesting is that some of them were afraid to provide information to the police because they, too, had heard many, many arguments coming from next door and heard and noticed um, his temper and that he was dangerous. So many of them didn't want to talk to the police because they were afraid of Charles. If they didn't know where he was, then I mean, yeah. rightfully so. Yeah. Rightfully it's so. Terrifying. So the police, knowing that Charles was armed and dangerous, they called in a SWAT team to descend upon the home and they used tear gas to try to you know smoke charles out of the house should he be inside i really don't remember when they told me that my dad had killed my mom i remember being at the police station for quite a while and then they took us to like a secure house because they couldn't find my dad and they were scared that he was still out and about and that he was looking for me and my sister because that's what he had been threatening. So we stayed at this house. Must have only been one night because they found my dad the next morning and he had committed suicide in the parking lot of a car dealership about 30 miles away. Um, I remember like watching the news and seeing them take my dad's body out of the car after he had killed himself and I think that's, you know, when I realized like, oh, he's really dead. And then I went to my mom's funeral and I was like, oh, she's really not coming back either. (laughs) 
So 24 hours later, they find Charles sitting in a Chevy Lumina rental car, and he is dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And lying next to him was the shotgun. Employees of the dealership that said that they saw the car park in the lot the previous evening, but they didn't really think anything of it. And other employees discovered the car at 9 a.m. the next morning as they were opening up for business. And this discovery of Charles effectively closed this case. We spent a lot of time scared that he was coming to get us. And so I I actually spent a lot of time after his death because they never saw him. They cremated him, so I never actually saw him. Like dead. I spent a lot of time just scared that he was going to come get me, which seems ridiculous, but you know, we just, me and my sister had that fear, even though he wasn't alive anymore. So, I think what she said was super interesting about the fact that because she didn't see her dad's body, she mm-hmm. didn't believe, like people are very, can be very visual. Well, especially at eight years old, it's like you don't fully understand, or most eight-year-olds, I'm assuming, don't fully understand the concept of death mm-hmm. and murder. No, and nothing. It's like they're getting... They, these kids were getting thrown around a million different ways, like going between the two parents, getting fucking kidnapped by their dad, thinking he was a good guy, and then like... It's Sensory just overload. It is. It's, it's overwhelming, and it's probably so confusing to actually understand what was happening. Yeah. The idea that you're... Your mom and your dad were both gone. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to reconcile that. Mm-mm. No, and it, yeah, and, and and then the fact that it's not like they both died in a plane crash or a tragic accident or anything like that. It was because your dad killed your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't understand that as a as a little kid like that. No, I mean, it's it's very difficult. And this this is why I I think I was when I said it was one of kind of the most important first degree stories we've had. It's it's very complicated to have a relationship with a victim and a perpetrator. It, such I a, mean the closest relationship right. they could have. So it's conflicting. Yeah. It's all sorts of things. But you know, Chelsea's so level headed about it and candid about how she feels, and I just think it's amazing. Yeah. So of course. You know, her mom, her mom's been murdered. Her dad has killed himself. And now they're left without parents. We basically just moved straight in with my grandparents. And um, my youngest uncle had just graduated college and literally just moved out the month prior. So my grandparents never had like the empty nest feeling you know they always had kids there and then they had to take me and my sister in i don't know i just think that they're absolutely the strongest people i've ever met (laughs) i know they're my grandparents but i just think like that is such i can't even imagine being in that situation and then having to take in the two kids that really don't understand what's going on and you know it's your daughter's children and then having to raise them while going through this grief of your daughter being murdered by the man that said he would love her forever. When I was going through, you know, all the police reports, I actually found my dad's suicide note. And as hard as it was to read, it had to have been absolutely devastating to my grandparents because he spent the whole letter blaming them 
for this. He blamed them for not letting him see his children. And then he said he was going to take my mom's life with his because he didn't feel like he needed to live any longer since me and my sister couldn't be part of his life. And it was through sickness and health. And in the end, he just said he was always going to be watching. And I just feel like that had to have taken a huge toll on my grandparents. So I just feel like the fact that they even wanted me and my sister <laughs> to take care of this is huge. And I still talk to them every other day, <laughs> 20 years later. <laughs> so Michelle did everything right. She leaves her husband. And you, you often see in these stories... If a woman gets killed by her boyfriend or her husband, why didn't she leave? She did it. She left. Why didn't she get a restraining order? She did it. She gets a restraining order to keep him away from her and their two children. Why didn't she move? She doesn't stay in one place. And she reports her husband whenever she caught him breaking the order. But every time he's jailed, he's quickly released. So she's doing everything that they tell you to do. But the bottom line is these, you know, and I think the, the was it the judge or something like that said, said it's just a piece of paper at the end of the day. Yeah. They only get protection of the individual being restrained uh, if they decide to uh, obey the law. If somebody doesn't want to obey the law. Yeah, it doesn't make paper is not going to yeah. stop I them. think that's like one of the craziest things that I had learned over the years. Because like when you're younger, you're like, oh, you have a restraining, restraining order. It's like, order. It's like this wall that's around you. It's like a restraining order doesn't mean shit. Yeah. It just gets them in more trouble. But if they don't give a shit about, if, if they're they willing to, to kill, kill you, you, they're going to kill you. And nothing, yeah. the restraining order, it literally is a piece of paper. No. It's not going to do shit to if, anyone. If somebody wants to kill you, they're gonna and you. they're going to kill you. And that's the, that's the freedom of our society unless they, they have been put in, unless they have been incarcerated. Right. And the signs were all here and everything that he was saying was all here, but there just wasn't enough to put him in jail for a certain amount of time. I have a question. Why didn't he go to jail for kidnapping his kids? He was supposed to go to jail the day... He killed her. Yes. So oh. he was. He didn't show up for his court. So he went to jail for violating the the order. Yeah. So then he violated the terms of his conditional. Like he was out on bond. Yeah. Um. So then, um, his friend gave him the bail money. Right. 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 Like a coworker. No, but it is crazy because it's like why is this bail only five hundred bucks? Because it was ninety nine. Oh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, kidnapping, I feel like you should like not. No, that wasn't. That was for violating the. Oh, the. Yeah. The restraining mm-hmm. order. Yeah, I don't. And I don't know what. He, I mean, I think he was just under. Dude, he was a privileged white dude, probably. They were like, oh, whatever. You keep violating your shit. $500. It wasn't even privileged white dude. It was privileged male. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, you, you know, they did not. But the kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, but they, but they in did, the ex- extortion. But they did not. There's just so prosecute. like this guy is obviously yeah. fucking violent. Well, in all the felonies like, he has in Cal, he was facing charges in California under his old name. Yeah, they did not prosecute um, sexual assault the way that they do now. Right. I mean, if you sexually assaulted somebody, you could be out on bail for like two thousand dollars back in like 1985. It was yeah. ridiculous the way that they did that. So, oh. but she did so many of the things that they tell you to do. She did and, everything you know, right, and it's like that's what's. Uh, it's like. Ugh. Well, there was an interesting debate in Oregon uh, when I was doing some of this research. I found all these articles that were saying they were proposing a bill at the time to give 
women who had to take off work unemployment benefits if they were being stalked oh. if they were hiding from an abuser okay because this yeah. is how he found her yeah yeah no, she no, succeeded. No, exactly. yeah. exactly and he's like well she's got to go back to work well, so here's, i'll yeah, find her i mean here's the thing too where it's like you know if you see somebody like as an outsider in this situation it's like yeah go go stay somewhere else go you know don't go to work it's like not everybody has the privileges She's to be able kids. to kind of up and leave. Yeah. Yeah. You can't take your kids out of school. You need to keep making money. You're- and she had been pr- promoted to manager at the jewelry store within within the year. So yeah. she'd worked there for eight years. Just got, She's just like bouncing. Like yeah. I'm finally, you know, she was designing her own line too. It's just, yeah. So that kind of law is interesting. But I imagine just the fraud. You know, because like they were proposing that a woman being stalked, running from abuser, can go on unemployment. But couldn't you just say they like being stalked? Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet you they just. But, you know but what, I though? bet you they were but worried about. Have, but if you have a restraining order, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good point. No, if you have a restraining order and you're showing it, and you're showing that you're doing all the right things, it's a great fucking law. I think it's a stupid, really good law too. Because that's hard. For the amount of shit that we spend on stupid Bullshit, shit, yeah, that's a good fucking law. No, it's great. It's. It was yeah. just an organ that they were maybe doing that? Well, this was, uh, it was just a debate. It was a string of articles that followed this murder. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they used her as an example of how it could have saved her life. Like right. if she could collect benefits, she felt forced to go to work because she was a single mom. Yeah. If she had benefits, she could have hung out until the husband got under control. I don't know what. I don't know. Until she well, got on her feet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it seems like this guy was not going That's to That's the thing. Though. Like, how do you stop one of these guys? Because they won't stop them until they commit a crime. Yeah. And no, that has to be the most terrifying thing to have to live through. Right. Knowing that that's like you're always being watched. And also in part of your brain, even if you're scared, part of your brain who that's naive to the fact that someone would kill you because who like you would never think someone who would have married you would kill you. And that's yeah. the thing with women where it's like. I feel like I would make that same mistake where I'd be like, this guy totally loves me. There's no way he would ever do anything terrible to me. First of all, all of you have like every man ever. Sorry, really. Not you. Yeah. Ah, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> they do shitty things. But the fact you never think I always give them benefit of the doubt and you never think they'd kill you ever. Right. Well, you don't really know somebody ever. So. Ever. Except you, Jack. You know me. I know you. You know me too. <laughs> I know all you the too dark, well. all fucked up. Billy uh, isn't nope. real. He's from the underworld. So yeah, no, I will say that I would never do anything to either of you. Aww. Aww. It's because we're not dating. Are you going to help me change my tire later? Are we really not dating? <laughs> we're dating after this. I thought, you know. Where is, where is, yes. I mean, knowing that, that, that I have these two beers here and I can't open them because my boyfriend Jared isn't here. So. <laughs> we can all be in like a collective relationship. We oh, can live in a really? commune. Oh, we're doing that? Yeah. All can right. I come? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, all great. Of us can we have a van? Plus Jared. Like no a, van, no like cereal. No, we're van. having a van. No cereal. Oh. A creepy white van? No, not a white van. A van eat? with a fucking wizard on the side of it. That is cool. Not a white van. An owl on the side of if it? If our no. listeners could see my eye roll that's happening right now. <laughs> Uh, Just with a bunch of Happy Meals inside, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. All right. So as we've discussed, we've discussed the potential impact 
that this would have on anybody. I mean, this is a very confusing time and a very confusing thing to absorb when you're eight. So we asked Chelsea how she kind of, how this manifested in her life over the years, how she dealt with this over the years. I don't know. I talked to my grandma just, you know, not very long ago, within the last year probably. And she told me um, that when I was young and that, that all this happened, I never really, she thinks I never really grieved it that well. And that she called me, she said I was like a little soldier. Like I just kept going through life, you know? And I, I always felt like I had to take care of my sister. And I still feel that way. <laughs> but she was so young and I know she can't really remember very much. And so, and, and she was my dad's favorite, you know, she loved him. I have my whole life, basically, I've hid this fact, but it, I mean, it, it's like on the news, you can look it up and find it. I just don't openly tell people about it because I am kind of afraid of them feeling bad for me or like what they're going to say behind my back, which seems ridiculous. I don't know. I feel like there's such a stigma almost on domestic violence and like who it happens to. And I feel like because I've heard all these stigmatizing things like I don't want my mom to be put in that category like I didn't really know my dad that well there's not really that much information on him because he had 15 different names and warrants out for his arrest everywhere that no one really knows about but I know that my mom was just an incredible person that so many people loved and you know she worked so hard she was a cheerleader in college and people just loved and adored her and she hid this from everybody because probably she was scared to death of my dad. Because every time I do tell someone, I always get that like, oh my gosh, I never would have expected that from you. Like I never would have imagined that happened to you. And I'm like, what does that even mean? It can literally happen to anybody. And it was my parents, but you know, it can be anybody. So just on the heels of what Chelsea said about how it can happen to anybody. I mean, we haven't really shared that much about Michelle, but she was a junior and senior prom court princess, played on the basketball team, track team, and cheerleading team in high school and college. And she went to Linfield College where she received a degree in marketing. And, you know, she had a job she loved. She had passion. She had loving parents, siblings, and two daughters she loved. And I totally understand what she's saying there with stigmatizing to have mm -hmm. domestic violence, but it happens in all walks of life. This woman, he was also older. It's, it's something we don't have in here, but Charles was, I think, 12 years older. So I know what it's like when you're younger than a guy to meet them and think they're older and put them on a pedestal yeah. and just and just slip into a normal that you don't realize is abusive. Right. You know, it's so it's so common. So what happened basically was I pretty much just ignored it my whole childhood. And then um, in college, I got married to this guy. Well, I ended up being with this guy for nine years and it ended up being an abusive marriage. Throughout college, um, the whole thing with my parents kind of started to get to me and I just wanted to know more. I just couldn't understand how my dad could do something like that, you know, and I really didn't know the whole story. My now ex-husband 
wasn't being that great to me and I just kind of got really depressed. So I ended up being a volunteer for CARDVA, which is the Center Against Rape and Domestic Violence in Corvallis, Oregon, which is actually um, the shelter that me and my mom stayed at when I was a baby because she had left my dad at one point. Um, so I went through this whole training to be an advocate for domestic violence and help, you know, victims. And then I had to move because my husband was in the military, so I didn't really get to do much. But I think that really sparked my interest, and I really wanted to help people that were in the same situation that my mom was in. And I thought it was cool that it was so close to home, and we had stayed there too. But then my husband, you know, became abusive, and I think I was just, I felt like such a hypocrite, and I was so ashamed of what was happening. So I just completely shut that down again. I didn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> just kept going through for a few years and I just progressively got worse. Um, abusive marriage. And I just didn't ever want to talk about my parents because I felt like a hypocrite and I just felt like if I was letting myself be in this situation, like how could I help anybody else? And how is that a good thing? Like. My mom died at the hands of my dad, and I'm just letting this relationship go on. So one day, you know, I sat there and I was like, what would my mom think of this? You know, like, is her death really going to go meaningless? But I never, it's been 20 years and I really haven't done anything. I haven't ever told the story publicly. I've only told it to close people, close friends of mine, who my family knows. Um, but I ended up getting all of the police reports and all of the information I could and I read all of it in two days and it's a lot of information and I just completely broke down and I was like this isn't fair like I can't do this anymore for myself and I can't do this to my family and my mom like that's just ridiculous you know like how can I have a husband that's threatening my life when my dad killed my mom so I ended up leaving him. It's been a year and a half, and now I just really understand the whole situation, I think. And I think it's crazy, and I don't want my mom's life and death to be meaningless. If my parents hadn't been in that same situation, I probably would have let my abusive relationship go on even longer until I really sat down and I was like, what would my mom think about this? What would she say? So I'm telling a story, and I hope it helps someone. After having my parents, after the situation that I was in, like maybe even just telling the story here, you know, will help people. I think Chelsea's so amazing. I, it, the bravery that that takes to tell the story for the first time, like like she said, she hasn't told anybody about it other than like her close friends and her family. So. I mean, we thank her for letting our platform be the one that she's telling it on because hopefully, like she said, it can help at least one person. Absolutely. And that's what I said. I told her, I said, you know, we are totally honored that you would even... Talking about this is hard enough. You know what I mean? So it's just, we're so... I don't know. I'm so like in awe of her in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you, Chelsea. You're the best. Thank you, Chelsea. Ever. So it's just another um, reminder. I mean, we've had a lot of domestic violence cases on here. 
none quite like this one and as impactful, but there's a lot of like reform to be made. Yeah. And I don't know what the solution is. And I know it's no, a hard one to come ex- out with. Exactly. Because she, like we were saying, she did all the right things mm-hmm. and she still ended up with her life being taken. Yeah. And like, what do you do? You yeah. Know? Uh, there was obviously a trail of this guy. I mean, the one thing that, that, that could have been done is that there was a trail of this guy and there was a trail of violence with this guy. He should have had a bigger sentence with some of the things that he had done. Yeah, that's what. That's but you know, he was shifty. It, she, yeah. He was shifty, though. Chelsea and I went back and forth for a while. I was helping her find his old identities. Oh, yeah, really? with all the yeah. different yeah. identities. It's and like... we found we found three. And one, Charles' friend, um, but we weren't sure. It's it's interesting because it seems like he assumed Charles Lavin and then someone started using his because it had recent, because he's deceased, but it had recent, and it is him. It's all the correct people. Right, right. But this person has recent texting and driving charges. Oh, wow. Oh. So we were like, let's look into this. Like we so would, somebody, somebody he, he was using other people's, but then, then somebody started using him. maybe That's using his. Weird. And, well, right. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. So Chelsea, we'll have to, uh, TBD, we'll, we'll continue on. But we generated all these reports, and it was... Really interesting, and I was really happy to help. Oh, yeah, Alexis loves uncovering some info. All the info. Yeah. Um, and how did Chelsea reach out to us? Either Instagram. Uh, Instagram. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Again, Alexis is checking our DMs <laughs> like a madman every five minutes. Uh, sure am. She won't let one message go through. Not a one. So if you guys are connected to a murder or other Stranger Than Fiction story, we would like to tell your story. Again, like... I mean, we're so honored that Chelsea reached out to us. And no story is too small. This is an incredible story. And a story of triumph. Yeah. Yes. And a story of... uh, Bravery. Bravery. And somebody that was doing the right thing. And even the right thing is not enough. So it's... It's it's a story of warning in a sense where you can do everything they tell you to do in all the books, but it's still not enough. Right. Which is scary. But the, but the more that we talk about it, the more yes. that hopefully it'll no, bring no, attention we, to we, it. We, we have to have that conversation. Right. Um, all right. So write us if you guys have a story and follow us on Instagram at Lexus Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek, at the first degree and keep your friends close, but not that close. Happy custard and fish day. Fish sticks. Uh, fish fingers and custard. <laughs> what the fuck is a fish finger? Uh, Ew.